This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The thing that's hard to understand, we try to think about the rationale for poisoners and try to think about what would motivate them. I think a lot of the time we're just unable to do that because there isn't a rationale. We're trying to think about a rational explanation for something that just isn't working. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Dr. Neil Bradbury is a professor of physiology and biophysics at the Chicago Medical School, and he's written this incredible book called A Taste for Poison. This is my second chat with a poison expert. I'm so interested in the idea of a killer weaponizing poison that I wanted to hear about even more cases. Where do I place you in the world of crime, if anywhere? Probably not terribly well in the world of crime. I'm actually spending most of my time doing research on cystic fibrosis. Oh, wow. And so I have been uh, doing that for many, many years. I grew up uh, watching murder mysteries on television and, of course, reading Agatha Christie novels Mm. and have always been interested in science. And one of the things that I felt was very much lacking in most of the stories I was reading was that people were killed with poisons. There were people dying, poisons sprinkled into food, but there was never really any indication as to exactly how those people were dying from the poison. Poison was given and the person just died. And to me, that was quite unsatisfactory. I attended university as a biochemistry student And it was actually during one particular class where the professor was mentioning a particular chemical called boncrecic acid. Now, that's not something that most people are ever going to come across. But I was thinking as the professor was talking about it, whether or not this could actually be useful in killing someone because it would be so unique and so rare that no one would ever figure out how I had killed someone. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think looking back on this, this was an unusual thought? It was just something that came to me. I, I, Because of my interest in murder mysteries, that this may be something that could be useful and re-sparked my interest in really understanding how poisons work on the human body because they all act in slightly different ways. They kill in completely different manners based upon the particular poison. It's also interesting that many of the things we consider to be poisons when used appropriately, can actually be used to save lives as well. So that's one of the other interesting things that I wanted to uh, get across, is that the chemicals by themselves really are not either good or bad. It's really how they're used. 
tell me what poison Agatha Christie would have appreciated the most in her time or currently. Is there some real devious, sneaky poison that is just brilliant? The amazing thing is that Agatha Christie obviously was a trained pharmacist, so she knew about poisons and their effects. And the one thing that I really was impressed with was her use of strychnine Hmm. and her description of the person who is suffering from strychnine poisoning. So strychnine has this ability to cause all the muscles of the body to contract simultaneously. It's a very agonizing death. And one of the telltale signs of someone being poisoned by strychnine is that their body ends up acting like a bow shape because usually our back muscles are much stronger than our abdominal muscles. And so when they contract, our bodies go into a bow-like shape so that the body, as Agatha Christie mentioned, is just resting on the back of the head and the heels. The other really nasty thing about strychnine is that as well as enhancing the contractions of our muscles, it also enhances our sensations so that our sense that we are dying is amplified. Heightened, so you really feel it. You really feel it and you know you're dying. It's a very nasty poison. Some of them are so sneaky that you would have to know to look for them. And I think that's one of the keys. That's why we see people exhuming bodies because the coroner didn't order a toxicology report, I suppose, because it just seemed like maybe a heart attack or stroke, something that was natural. Is that right? That's right. And there are some poisons that are fairly rare. I can think of one case of poison that was actually hidden in a chicken curry. Oh, (laughs) And the story revolved around a woman who was having an affair with uh, another man who went by the unfortunate name of Lucky Chima. And so you can imagine that having a name like Lucky was not going to bode well for him. Uh, He decided that he wanted to end the affair because he was getting married to uh, another woman. And Mrs. Singh decided that if she wasn't going to have Lucky, then no one would. And so she placed the poison aconite in chicken curry that she then placed in his fridge. Lucky and his fiancée then went on to eat the chicken curry and developed severe aconite poisoning. This is a very deadly poison Mm -hmm. and had to go to hospital. He died. She didn't eat quite so much of the curry and did manage to survive. It went to the forensic scientists in the lab to try and determine what the poison was. There was a strong suspicion that it was in fact aconite, but no one in the lab had ever seen aconite before. And the way in which they really convinced themselves that it was aconite that had come from a plant was by sending off to the botanical gardens, Kew Gardens in London, for a sample of the plant that they could then compare with the stomach contents from Lucky and his fiance. And finally, they were able to convict Mrs. Singh of killing with aconite. I've always been confused by Thomas Neal Cream. He would poison people from abroad. I know he was removing a couple of obstacles, like a wife in his life, but then why poison sex workers who were posing no obstacles? It's just confusing to me. Poisoners confuse me. It is very confusing. And I think, again, it comes back to the fact that we're trying to rationalize an activity that really isn't rational. 
And so we're never going to really understand what motivates an individual other than trying to get an inheritance or get rid of someone that's annoying, which we can understand. But people like Thomas Cream just don't seem to have anything that we would think of as rational in their behavior. That's true. Let's talk about one of your fantastic cases. What is your favorite case in your book that you think you can go into some pretty good detail with good characters? I think the first case of Ken Barlow with insulin is interesting because it covers something that we all think of a lot as a life-saving drug. It's something that has indeed saved the lives of thousands, if not millions of people across the planet and is used every day. But again, it's an example of one of those drugs that when used inappropriately can be very deadly. In fact, it was only 30 years between the discovery of insulin and its use to treat patients with diabetes before Ken Barlow decided he was going to use it to kill his wife. Ken was a nurse, he'd worked as a nurse, and his wife was also a nurse, and that's probably where they met at one of the hospitals around Leeds in England. He had decided that he was going to kill his wife. Again, the reasons are not quite clear. He always maintained that he was innocent. There was no reason why he would kill her. When she died, she was a few months pregnant. He had become unemployed, and it was suspected that he wanted to get rid of not only his wife, but the child as well, in order to save any financial burdens that would be inappropriately placed upon him. He had bragged to colleagues in other hospitals that he thought insulin would be a great way to kill people because it would be undetectable. And this comes to a lot of the issues with poisons is the thought that it's an undetectable weapon of murder. And in fact, that's not really the case. But at the time, insulin was not really one of the poisons that could be identified. In fact, nobody had even thought that insulin would be used as a poison. Tell me what year this is again, just to remind me. So this is in the 1950s. Okay. Insulin was discovered in 1921, was marketed just a few years later. So this was just a few decades after insulin was discovered. He argued that he had indeed injected his wife with a drug, but it was an abortion drug, which may seem reasonable, but in fact, abortion at the time was also illegal, and so he was admitting to an illegal act anyway. But not murder. (laughs) But not murder. He didn't know at the time that the police had already looked for that chemical within her body and had been unable to find it. Hmm. They suspected that he had given his wife insulin injections, an insulin overdose. And insulin really has the job in our bodies of regulating blood sugar levels. When we have a meal, blood sugar goes up, insulin goes up to bring it uh, back down to a proper level. And any time we have huge swings in blood sugar levels, we have problems. And anybody who has diabetes knows that you have to maintain your blood sugar within very narrow limits. One of the important things about uh, blood sugar or, or glucose is that it's the only fuel that the brain can use. And if blood sugar levels drop too dramatically, then the brain stops functioning. And when the brain stops functioning, obviously the individual dies. And the doctor who came to the house and found uh, Mrs. Barlow slumped in the bathtub was really convinced that she had not died 
purely from drowning, as was initially suspected, but she had been poisoned. Two small pinpricks were found on her body and parts of tissue were excised from her body to go for forensic analysis. Unfortunately, at the time, there was no method for detecting insulin. No one had ever suspected that insulin would be used for murder and so no one had ever thought to come up with a test for it. The police decided that they would contact the drug manufacturers, who obviously needed some way of making sure that they were putting the right amount of insulin into the bottles that they were dispensing to patients. And they had a test which is known as the mouse convulsion assay. Unfortunately, this was the only way of really identifying poisons, is by testing them on animals. Nowadays, obviously, and thankfully that doesn't happen, we have sophisticated machines that will enable us to detect chemicals without using animals. But at the time, this was the only method to use. And no one had ever thought not only to test for insulin, but testing for insulin not in its pure form that the drug companies were putting into bottles, but insulin that was in a dead body. So the problems of extracting the insulin from the body, then testing it, proved to be eventually fatal towards Ken Barlow. Large amounts of insulin were found, lethal levels of insulin were found. He was convicted of murder. Fortunately for him, his conviction for murder was just a few years after hanging was abolished in Britain, so he didn't hang. He maintained his innocence up to his release just a few years ago. Never confessed. He was given ample opportunity to confess to the crime, which would have shortened his sentence. He always maintained his innocence and lived out his full sentence for murder. Wow. So I find that interesting because we talk about people who were wrongfully convicted and there's actually a really great article that talks about how they're split in half. There are the people who have been wrongfully convicted, but they don't want to be in prison no matter what. So they just admit to it, to the parole board, and then they can be released. And then, of course, there are the people who say they've been wrongly convicted and they will never admit to it. They could have been paroled. What is the mindset behind that? It was clear reading through the trial transcripts that the evidence convicting him was overwhelming. I don't think any doubt was there that he had murdered his wife and that he had killed her by injecting with a lethal dose of insulin. So why he decided that he would maintain his innocence when he could have come out early on parole is not clear. There was a son involved who never spoke to him again. The son was convinced that his father had killed his mother and they were estranged for the rest of his life. So he was convinced as well. So I'm assuming that there quickly afterward or somewhat quickly afterward became a test for insulin in someone's body. There became a test for insulin and it became a chemical test that did not involve animals. Thank goodness. And so it is really a remarkable account of how various chemical tests have been developed over the years. And one of the things that I found interesting is that a lot of the instances of poisoning are really a game between poisoners and forensic scientists as poisoners come up with new poisons 
that are seemingly undetectable at the time, forensic science has to come up with new ways of detecting those poisons. And if you look at the history of poisoning, you can see that certainly in the 1700s and even up into the early 1800s, really the poison of choice were things like arsenic Mm -hmm. and cyanide because those were difficult to detect. One scientist, Marsh, came up with a test that was definitive for proving arsenic in a murder victim, and he had a lot of convictions for arsenic poisoning. Because of that, arsenic poisoning went out of favor as a murder weapon, and other poisons, particularly plant poisons, became much more prevalent, certainly in Victorian times, because the technology to detect those plant-based poisons was not there yet. As technology improved, those detection methods also got better and the plant poisons could be detected now. And so, theoretically, any poison could be detected. But unfortunately, it's also a matter of oftentimes you have to know exactly what you're looking for in order to find it. Right. But if you're also a poisoner, you have to get the dosage right. Because if you don't give them enough, it just makes them a little sick. Maybe they get suspicious. If you give them too much, maybe it'll be more easily detectable. Am I overthinking this? Well, that can actually be one of the benefits of certain poisons. For example, arsenic is a poison that's what is called an accumulative poison. So you can give little bits of poison to a person over many weeks, over many months even, and it will gradually accumulate in their bodies. One of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning is that it looks very much like an upset stomach. So you have stomach ache, you may have a little bit of diarrhea, but nothing that would make you necessarily suspicious. But over time, given more and more arsenic, it can eventually build up to lethal levels. And of course, there's nothing that necessarily suggests the person's been poisoned. They've just been unwell for a couple of months and nothing may seem untowards until they eventually die. But they've died because of accumulation of arsenic in their bodies, which would be quite different from something like cyanide, which would kill you literally within a few minutes of exposure. So depending upon how distant you wanted to be from your victim, you would give them something like cyanide, which would kill very quickly, versus arsenic, which would kill over many months, potentially. What's another sexy <laughs> sexy poison? It's <laughs> a good case. So I'll talk about cyanide. Cyanide is obviously a favorite of Agatha Christie and is something that I think most people have heard about. Interestingly, most of us eat cyanide every day. Cyanide is found in apple pips, for example. Mm -hmm. And any time we swallow uh, apple pips, we are ingesting a small amount of cyanide. Those are the seeds, is that right? Those are the seeds. Is that British, the apple pips? It is. And (laughs) I think that's important because there is a story that is associated with a defense lawyer who used that defense that the murder victim had in fact died not from poisoning and being poisoned with cyanide that had been put into a beer bottle, but had in fact inadvertently died from eating apples and swallowing the seeds of apples. How many pips would have taken to kill someone? Thousands? That was brought up by the prosecution. 
<laughs> and it was determined that you did need several thousands of apple seeds or apple pips to succumb to cyanide poisoning. The defense attorney at the time was Sir Fitzroy Kelly, who after this case became known as Apple Pips Kelly <laughs> for his failed defense of his client for cyanide poisoning. How embarrassing. What a terrible way to earn a nickname. <laughs> So there are poisons we use to disable people, and then there are poisons we use to kill people. Yes. I think most people, when they're using poisons, really want to have the poison being the cause of death, trying to get it either done quickly or slowly enough that they can be a long way away and have a decent alibi for when the individual dies. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things that I bring out in the book is that oftentimes the poisoning victims can die when the killers are not only many miles away, but on different continents, hmm. in different countries, if the poison has taken long enough. And that can make it difficult for police to arrest the individuals responsible. One of the stories that I think illustrates that really nicely is the case of an individual who went into hospital complaining of being very unwell, signed in under the name of Edwin Carter into a London hospital. Edwin Carter was seen by several doctors who realized that he was very severely ill, but could not figure out what was causing his problems. Until a few hours later, the patient called over a doctor and said, my name really isn't Edwin Carter. I'm actually a Soviet agent who's defected to the United Kingdom mm. and I have been assassinated. He wasn't exactly sure what he was assassinated with and despite many, many tests, no one could figure out what was killing him until one of the doctors who was walking about noticed that he looked very much like some of the cancer patients that he was treating. His hair was falling out, he was looking very emaciated, mm. and it was eventually decided that he must be suffering from some kind of radiation poisoning. But what kind of radiation? No one had a clue as to what it might be. All the regular tests, radiation detectors that are present in hospitals couldn't detect any radiation, even though the symptoms were very classic of radiation poisoning. His blood and urine was sent off to a government facility, and it was determined that he had been exposed to a drug called polonium, radioactive polonium. That is really only produced in one facility in Siberia. Edwin Carter had claimed that he was indeed a, a defecting Soviet agent. His real name was Sasha Litvinenko. He had defected to England. He claimed that Putin had ordered his assassination with polonium. The polonium was given to him in a cup of tea. What could be more British than putting poison in a cup of tea? Mm -hmm. The assassins left 
the same day that Vinenko had been poisoned. They flew back to Russia. They have been interviewed by police, but extradition has been refused. It's been determined that we know exactly who the killers are, but it's unlikely that they'll ever be brought to justice because they have fled the country because it took only about a week for Litvinenko to die, but obviously long enough for the assassins to fly out of London back to Russia. It's incredible to me. It's still used very effectively. And you were starting to tell me about a cyanide case. What's the cyanide case? So cyanide, as a reminder, is a very painful, quick, shooting someone type of poison. Is that right? Cyanide is very quick, very effective. It is always said that cyanide has a faint smell of almonds about it. Mm -hmm. And that is probably true because almonds also contain a small amount of cyanide. So I suppose you could say that almonds have a slight cyanide smell. But don't they say only certain people can smell cyanide? Is that an old wives' tale? I've always heard that. No, that's actually true. And a series of experiments were performed in the 50s where people were given samples of cyanide to smell and determined that only a small percentage of people can smell cyanide. It's not clear whether any of the individuals were aware that they were given cyanide to smell and is certainly not something that would be permissible today. But that data is out there and it's true that only a certain fraction of the population can indeed detect cyanide by smell. Cyanide works by killing a small part of the cell called a mitochondria. This is where all the energy in the cell works. And just like a power station will power up a city, and if that power station goes down, the whole city goes down. In our cells, we have little powerhouses called mitochondria, and the cyanide kills those completely. And so without any energy, the cell dies. And if enough cells die, then the tissues and the whole body will eventually die. And that happens very quickly. Given a large amount of cyanide, it can happen within a few seconds to a few minutes. And so it's a very quick-acting poison. One of the people that used cyanide to kill was a person called Graham Young. He had been placed there for killing his mother-in-law with thallium. Thallium was a poison, again, that Agatha Christie wrote about in one of her books and was a very unusual poison. Graham Young used thallium to kill his mother-in-law, was sentenced and was placed in a hospital for the criminally insane. This was in the 1960s, 1970s, so not that long ago. Whilst he was in hospital... He had got annoyed with some of the other inmates and had extracted cyanide from plants and trees that were growing on the grounds of the hospital and had killed other patients with cyanide whilst he himself was in prison for killing other people with thallium. So again, the, the rationale for why people chose to kill... This is a case where it's really hard to figure out why someone would kill. He went into prison when he was 14 years old. He was the youngest person ever sentenced to a hospital for the criminally insane. And even when he got out, he carried on killing people. 
That's incredible. So what ultimately happens? He was eventually convicted of killing multiple people, was sentenced back to hospital where he eventually died in somewhat strange circumstances. It's not clear whether he died of natural consequences, whether he took his own life from some poison that he'd managed to concoct. So the point being is that we can find poisons all around. And if a person is determined enough to find a poison, even in a prison they can find it. Cyanide uh, is an interesting because it is very rapidly used to kill. One of the things that is also interesting is that people take cyanide every day. Anybody that's taking a multivitamin pill will be taking cyanide because cyanide binds very tightly to certain molecules. And when it's bound very tightly, particularly to vitamin B, for example, it's incredibly innocuous. And so we can use that to get rid of cyanide. Vitamin B injections are actually one of the cures for cyanide poisoning. If you can get vitamin B injected into a victim quick enough, it will actually mop up all the cyanide and prevent the person from dying. What's quick enough, though? How quick is that? It is within minutes. It is within minutes, unfortunately. Now, people who work around cyanide, so for example, people in the gold mining industry work around cyanide because cyanide is one of the few things that will react with gold. And so cyanide is used in the extraction and purification of gold. And those individuals always carry around with them a cyanide kit that will allow them to be injected if they're ever exposed accidentally, in that case, to cyanide. So people who are working with cyanide will carry kits around that can be used for antidotes. What's your poison crush? The most impressive poison? I think arsenic is usually my favorite poison. I know it's an old poison and one that has a long history, but it also has a history of being used in homes, surprisingly. Arsenic's been known as a poison, obviously, for many, many years, even going back into the early times. In Renaissance Europe, the Borgias were famous for using arsenic to get rid of any competitors. It's been known for many thousands of years, probably, Most people would not think about bringing poisons willingly into their home. But during the Victorian era, people were bringing in arsenic into their home in huge amounts. And they were bringing it in with a newly discovered pigment. This was called Shields Green that was made from arsenic. And at the time, in Victorian houses... People were starting to get gaslighting into their houses. People could see the houses, and so it seemed natural that they would put wallpaper up to show off the fact that they now were wealthy enough they could afford gaslighting. And obviously, the more bright and impressive the pattern of your wallpaper, the more important you were going to be. And one of the main colors that was used in wallpaper at the time was a pigment called Shields Green, which was made from arsenic. And this Shields Green was so vibrant, so widely used that not only was it used in wallpaper, it was used on children's toys, it was used to color clothing, and it was even used as a food coloring. Wow. So sort of like asbestos or lead, but even more prevalently used. Wow. People were bringing this into their homes. 
One of the downsides to Victorian homes, even though they were now covering their rooms with wallpaper, is that the homes were very damp. And the wallpaper was usually attached to the wall with a paste made out of flour. And you can imagine that damp environments, flour holding wallpaper to the wall, was a lovely food source for fungus. Mm. And the fungus started chewing up the wallpaper. And when they did, they started breaking down the shield's green dye and releasing a gas from arsenic called arsine gas that was being released into the rooms. And it was eventually found that many Victorians were really suffering from arsenic poisoning. But ironically, people decided that this could actually be a marketing tool. Because if you put it in your bedroom, it would kill bedbugs. Oh, gosh. And so it was decided this would be a great marketing tool. It certainly killed bedbugs, but unfortunately, it also killed a lot of children. Oh, and pets and yeah, oof. What's another poison that you talk about in your book with another case? I'm trying to think of poisons that people would not necessarily think of as poisons Mm -hmm. and something that most of us have in our houses. And this is bleach. Bleach, as we know, is used to sterilize and disinfect and is very good for that. And bleach has been one of the main things that has caused a huge reduction in infectious diseases spreading and responsible for an increase in life expectancy. It does that because it kills biological material and it will kill bugs, it will kill bacteria and viruses for sure, but it's not something that you would want to get inside your body. Unfortunately, there was a healthcare worker, Kimberly Sines, who was working in a dialysis center in Lufkin, Texas, and she had decided that some of the people who were coming in routinely for dialysis were just too annoyed were too demanding of her time. And so she decided that she would inject bleach directly into their intravenous lines during dialysis. Oh, oh my gosh. She was convicted of this. Again, she denied any involvement. She was surprised that anyone would even suspect her, despite the numerous eyewitnesses seeing her and watching her doing this to patients. She maintained her innocence and that she was not responsible. And so this is, again, one of those two-sided bases to chemicals is that they can be used for good, but they can also be used for evil if they're used inappropriately. And that's one of the things I wanted to get out of the book is that chemicals are not really bad in themselves or good in themselves. They're just chemicals. And it really depends who's using them and as to what reason they're using them, that they become good or bad. If you're a forensic pathologist and you have someone who's brought in who is dead and suspected of being poisoned, Is there a catch-all test that will go ding-ding arsenic or ding-ding cyanide? Or do you have to look at the body and decide what tests specifically to run? How do they find out which poison this is? There is no blanket test that will say this is this poison. You can't just take a sample of blood and put it into a machine and it pops out. This is what they were killed with. You really have to know 
what you're looking for or have a good suspicion of what you're looking for. Now, there are certain things that will give clues as to what that poison may be. And we've discussed several poisons and how they kill. And the symptoms that are experienced by an individual vary depending upon what poison an individual is given. We've talked about cyanide and we've said that that attacks the powerhouse of the cell. And one of the reasons that we breathe is we have to bring in oxygen and that oxygen is used by the mitochondria to power our bodies. And cyanide stops that from happening. So the oxygen is not used in the body. And so the person who has been poisoned with cyanide typically has bright pink colored skin because their blood is loaded up with oxygen and they're appearing very fit and healthy and well. The other thing with cyanide is that most people, if they're poisoned with cyanide, are given a compound, usually potassium cyanide, which is swallowed, gets into the stomach, and when it reacts with the acid in the stomach, produces another chemical called hydrocyanic acid, which is a gas, but it's also very toxic and will cause severe burning. So if you go into an individual that you suspect as having cyanide poisoning and look at their stomach, it's usually very corroded because the hydrocyanic acid that's produced starts eating away at the stomach lining and can even go up into the esophagus and will cause frothing of the mouth that people typically associate with cyanide poisoning. That's because the cyanide is getting into the lungs, reacting with the fluid in the lungs and causing it to froth. Other things, we've mentioned strychnine that causes all the muscles in the body to contract. And so the body is very stiff and very very shaky. And a lot of the times you can see people that would have had very strong contractions of their muscles. And if someone has witnessed their death, they can see that. So there are lots of clues as to what the poison may be, because they all give slightly different symptoms. And so you can figure out roughly what area of drugs that you may be looking for. Things like strychnine are part of a, a broader class of chemicals called plant alkaloids, which are very widespread in terms of poisons. But they also contain rather benign compounds like quinine that we would have in tonic water. So alkaloids are detectable, but you have to know that you're looking for an alkaloid. And there are certain symptoms that would be indicative of that. So even though there is no blanket way of detecting poisons, you do have to know what you're looking for. But clues from how the person died and what the body looks like now give you an indication of what direction you need to go in to look for a particular poison. I feel like poison really hit its stride in America with arsenic and old lace, which I love that movie. Turning the poisoning of pensioners into a comedy is an odd choice, but it is a legacy movie. It is. And arsenic is certainly something that's been used widely, even in America. In the 1920s, there was a big legal case referred to as the Philadelphia murder plot. And this centered around women who were convinced to take out life policies against their husbands. The policy was then taken out, 
And the wives were then given arsenic to kill their husbands. Hmm. The wives then went and collected the life insurance policies. Of course, they had to give a percentage of the policy to the person that had supplied the arsenic to them in the first place. (laughs) But this was a major criminal case in the 1920s. People were taking out large amounts of life insurance policies, and it was a huge ring. It was a large conspiracy, and many people were sent to prison because of this. What are the lessons learned about poisons? I would hope the takeaway from the book is learning about the body. Our body is really remarkable and it, for the most part, works very well. Poisons will certainly be harmful to our body, but some of the time those same poisons can actually be useful in healing our bodies. And so it's not necessarily that a chemical is bad, it just depends how it's used. And oftentimes we may be given something by a doctor that has been used as a poison in the past, but can be used for our benefit. And I I want to get that across that poisons are interesting, they are useful, it's been used for learning a lot about the body. It gives us a lot of information about how our body works. But ultimately, poisons are detectable. And it is not a means now that many people would ever get away with killing by using poisoning. On the next episode of Wicked Words, David Crow on his abusive father who turned killer. By the time I hit nine, ten years old, he was teaching me how to steal tools and for me to be his lookout. He was explaining to me why sometimes killing is the only answer. You have to live by your own rules and eventually start telling me stories about San Quentin. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.